This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. On the last episode, I talked to LaFawn Davis about being queer at work, the discrimination of the LGBTQ community has faced, and the importance of using preferred pronouns in the office communication, and a lot more. In that episode, we touched a little bit on the experience of being trans at work, but this week we're going to focus more on the challenges of transitioning at work. Joining me to discuss trans rights at work is Gabrielle Arkless. Gabrielle is a senior counsel at the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. Gabrielle, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you've been doing this work for a long time. Before your current position, you worked at the ACLU and the LGBT and HIV Project. I know that your work spans legal protections for LGBTQ people in many aspects of life, but for the purposes of our show, let's just focus primarily on workplace rights. What what have you seen change over the last several years? So I started this work back when I graduated law school in 2004. At the time, I was with the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. And over the years, a number of things have changed pretty dramatically. One is that there's now total clarity that discrimination against transgender people in the workplace is against the law. It's against federal law, and in most states, it's against state law as well. I'm proud to have played a role in achieving that clarity when I represented Amy Stevens along with others before the Supreme Court last year. But really, that's been a battle that's been going on for such a long time that so many people have contributed to. Um, In different states, it became clear at different times uh, that it was against the law to discriminate against trans people. Um, But now we know all across the country, it's not legal. Another thing that's different is, is the extent of healthcare access. There are still very serious problems with trans people getting access to the healthcare that we need related to gender transition. But when I first started in this work, it was all but unheard of for a major insurance company not to have some sort of a discriminatory exclusion for trans healthcare um, in their policies. And now there's there's been a real shift, which is partly due to the work of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund over the years. These exclusions still exist, but they are just not as pervasive as they once were. And then another thing is just there's so much more public awareness and visibility around trans issues now. When I started this work, people would claim not to even know what the word transgender meant or would claim that they had never met a transgender person. That's less common now, although it still happens. And it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, actually, because visibility doesn't necessarily mean safety. It doesn't necessarily mean equitable treatment in the workplace. Sometimes visibility can bring its own sort of vulnerability along with it. But it is one thing that has really changed over the years. So there's a lot of things in that that I want to get more into. Can you first, though, um, explain a little bit? I know it was a years-long case, um, the the Supreme Court case that you mentioned? Yes. 
Amy Stevens was a transgender woman who worked as a funeral director. She cared deeply about her work. She considered it a calling to try to help people in moments of grief and loss. And by all accounts, even by her employer's account, she was wonderful at her job. She was skilled and compassionate. And then she she told her boss that she was transgender and that she would be transitioning and returning to work as who she really is, Amy Australia Stevens. She had previously been perceived as a man. And her boss fired her for that. Uh, he said that it simply wasn't going to work out. He thought that men should look like men and women should look like women. Discrimination against transgender people has not been legal for a long time, but it's only last year in Amy Stevens' case that the Supreme Court confirmed without any shadow of a doubt that it was illegal at the time it happened to her. It has been illegal ever since the Civil Rights Act was passed. I see. So because it was the interpretation of the Civil Rights Act to include discrimination against sex included discrimination against transgender people. And before that, the courts were ruling sometimes that it didn't. There were some early cases in the 70s that ruled that discrimination on the basis of sex couldn't include discrimination against people for um, for changing sex or for identifying with a sex different than the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, but really since the 90s, there was a Supreme Court case called Pricewaterhouse v. Hopkins. And that was a case where a cisgender woman, so a woman who was not transgender, was denied partnership at Pricewaterhouse. And part of the reason she was denied a partnership is because people perceived her to be too masculine. Um, so one of the people told her that she should go to charm school and she should walk more femininely and talk more femininely and wear makeup and this and that. And the Supreme Court there ruled, look, if you're discriminating against somebody because they don't comply with stereotypes associated with their sex, then you're discriminating with them on the basis of sex and that's illegal. And really since that case, the lower courts in the country hadn't had much trouble saying, okay, well then discrimination against transgender people has to be illegal too. I want I want to ask about another thing that you said, that visibility is is more common, but that it's a double-edged sword. Why why is that? This comes up in a couple of different contexts. One is just in terms of safety, physical safety on the street. There have been these remarkable trans women of color leaders like Laverne Cox and Janet Mock, who have um, helped raise visibility of trans women of color. And that has been a beautiful and powerful thing that I think has helped a lot of trans people to see people, to see other trans people in these positions as leaders who are bold and who are unashamed and who care about their communities and who are advocating for our communities. But the fact that they're doing that work doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to be treating the trans people they encounter on a day-to-day basis better. I mean, hopefully over time, it contributes to people treating trans people better. But it's not like it's not like trans celebrities have any control over what people on the street are going to be doing. And in fact, when trans issues are more at the forefront of people's minds or there are more controversies about trans issues. And this hasn't just been 
these incredible leaders, this has also been since marriage equality, anti-LGBTQ advocates have shifted gears to really focus laser sharp on attacking trans youth. Like all of these things have, have raised the salience of transgender people in people's minds that has not necessarily translated into safety. So every year the in the last few years, the rates of murder of trans women of color have gone up. I think that that at least some, again, trans scholars of color and trans advocates of color have pointed out that heightened visibility can actually sometimes worsen safety. If people are are thinking about trans people, but there aren't actually concrete measures to value trans people's lives. Um, if material conditions aren't different, if trans people don't have access to safe housing, if trans people aren't able to get jobs, then visibility can actually in some ways increase vulnerability. That's not true across the board, but but it is something. I also noticed that um, you know, it used to be that trans men, we still are compared to trans women, less visible. But it used to be that it was relatively unusual that somebody would would look at somebody and identify them as a trans man. And it's gotten a little bit more common, which actually makes some of us a little bit more concerned about our safety, right? Um, like if I can go into a space and nobody's going to notice or think about me being trans, uh, then they're not likely to attack me for being trans. Um, but if I'm getting noticed, then there's just a little bit more risk there. It's also so important that people are creating more spaces for people to share the pronouns that they use. And referring to us properly, it isn't just a token of respect. It's acknowledging who we are. And it's acknowledging that you care more about how we want to be treated than about how we fit into your ideas about gender. And reducing misgendering it actually saves lives. I mean, there have been studies that show just using the right names and the right pronouns for trans people dramatically decreases suicide. It can also avoid outing us in contexts where we could be at risk for physical violence. So all of that is really good, but I, I also know some places that are saying that everyone is required to disclose their pronouns. I actually don't think that's a great policy because there are some trans people, especially some non-binary trans people who may use pronouns like they and them, who actually aren't necessarily comfortable disclosing their pronouns because that in and of itself can be outing and they aren't necessarily going to want to do that in every single context. Yeah, you you touched on so many things in there. And I think there's a lot a lot in there that I want to come back to, because, you know, as you start to talk about things like pronoun usage and requiring or suggesting people uh, use their preferred pronouns, then that really starts to to get into building an inclusive culture and 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 the, the trans experience, the unique different trans experience in, at the workplace. You know, when we talk about the LGBTQ experience, kind of all the letters get lumped together, but the experience of, of being trans can be very different from the experience of being lesbian or gay or bisexual, especially at work. What are what are some of the unique challenges for trans individuals as they navigate work life as, as far as, and I think, you know, you touched on it a little bit, like the unintentional outing or the passing or, you know, get, workplace rights? 
Yes. So, I mean, of course, there is overlap. Um, lots of trans people are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and there are lesbian, gay, and bisexual people who are trans. There are also a lot of trans people who are perceived as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, even if we aren't. And there are lesbian and gay and bisexual people who might be visibly gender nonconforming and might experience some of similar types of anti-trans bias that trans people experience. Um, but there are certainly some things that are certainly far more common for trans people than for cis LGBTQ people. Um, I mean, one issue we touched on a little bit already is about healthcare access. Um, many trans people need to access medical or surgical care related to gender transition. Not all, of course, but for those of us who need it, it's a very serious need, like any sort of health care. Um, so for example, um, we have a client now, Anna Ling, who is a sergeant in the sheriff's office of Halston County in Georgia. Um, and she has been paying into her employer provided health insurance like everybody else. Um, but when she needed surgery related to gender transition, she had to face a, a total exclusion to any sort of trans healthcare coverage. Um, and we are now representing her in a case suing them because that is another form of sex discrimination as well as disability discrimination. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Aside from discriminatory healthcare coverage, which sounds like a, a still very pervasive and still really huge and important issue for trans employees and for their families, where do employers, where do you see employers usually failing in creating an inclusive workplace for trans people? And, and how can they, what what can they do to make a more inclusive and, and welcoming work environment for trans employees? Yeah, so there's a lot that employers can do. Um, just to briefly name some of the other common problem areas, there's often pervasive misgendering and dead naming and also other forms of harassment. Um, so some of the other forms of harassment includes making jokes about people's gender um, or what people think of as more sort of classically sexual harassment. Trans people are often targeted for unwanted sexual advances and so on. Um, misgendering and dead naming, I think some people think of it as a small thing, but it isn't. I mean, um, for me, even as somebody who transitioned decades ago, it's if somebody misgenders me once, it's this, it's, a, it's almost like a gut punch. It's, it's this feeling of disorientation and pain that can stay with me for a week. And if you, there are some people who are experiencing this over and over and over and over again, dozens or hundreds of times a day in a single day. Um, and when employees complain about it, they're often told, oh, you just need to have patience and, you know, people will catch on or it's too hard for people to use these pronouns, which is a really unacceptable response to any form of harassment. If somebody is getting misgendered, just like any other type of harassment, employers need to take that very seriously. Um, they need to make sure that everybody knows that it's unacceptable. They need to and they need to discipline employees who insist on continuing to misgender people. Um, 
I mean, that's just the reality. I can't be on the trans person to just wait forever while this is happening to them. I mean, that's that's such like when you said that and, and you think about that in any other context, right? Can you imagine going to your employer? I mean, God, hopefully and saying that you're being sexually harassed and, and that your employer saying you just you just need to. It's too hard for them not to sexually harass you. You, you need to be more patient with them. Yes, like it's just, that would, it's unfat, you know, that would also be completely unacceptable. Right. And we, <laughs> but it's, but if yeah. you, when you put it, when you phrase it like that, everyone's of co- that's horrific. Of course you wouldn't do that. But, but you're right. So many times those things get said, or it's like, oh, I don't know how to use they and them. It's, it's kind of clunky for me to, I'm not used to it or something or, or, or like, oh, oops, I, you know, like it does get kind of pushed to the side, I think a lot. And, and when you think of it in the context of, would this be okay in any other circumstance? And, obviously no. And I do think that non-binary people tend to get this more than some others. Um, Not that trans men and trans women don't also get misgendered, but I think non-binary people in particular experience this at such high rates and there's so little accountability around it. There's also issues around um, things like time off. So I continue to hear from trans people who are told um, that they are not allowed to take time off to recover from surgery or to go to court for a name change, or also family members of trans people who are told that they they can't use um, their family leave to take care of a of a spouse or a child who's recovering from gender affirming surgery. And there are also issues around anything that is sex specific. So if there's a gender dress code or if there are single sex restrooms, that's always going to be something that makes life more difficult for trans people. If, you know, for some of us, there's just, it's impossible to know where we're going to be safe or allowed to be. You go into one restroom and you might get told you don't belong. You go into another restroom, you might again get told you don't belong. And it becomes this whole production where you have to spend your entire day trying to plan around how you can use the restroom safely with as few people as possible seeing you and judging where it is that you're going or telling you that you need to leave the restroom or whatever it is. I mean, gender dress codes, I really don't think are good for anyone. Lots of people don't want to follow gender dress codes. Um, There was another thing, actually, the employer in Amy Stevens' case, he required all women to wear skirts or dresses. Um, And I mean, you don't have to be trans to be someone who doesn't want to wear a skirt or dress to work, right? Um, I mean, you should certainly be allowed to, but nobody should be required to. You'd think that we had moved past that sometime like in the last century, right? (laughs) You would think so. It's surprising. I've actually, you know, as you say that, I think I've had two jobs in my life that required skirts for women and also pantyhose, which I was like, who wears pantyhose anymore? But I think, you know, we've also seen I remember there was a story of a woman, I think in the UK, suing her employer because they required women to wear high heels. And she was a cisgendered straight woman, but she's just like, that hurts my feet. I don't want like these, these really weird antiquated dress code rules. Yeah. Like aren't literally good for absolutely no one. Right. And then even places that don't have a gender dress code per se will still sometimes penalize trans people for what they see as inconsistent gender presentation. So, um, you know, I've spoken to trans people who are gender fluid or who just will dress differently depending on whether they have family members home who are going to treat them badly if they dress a certain way. And so may come to work one day dressed 
um, in clothes that are a bit more feminine and come to clothes that are that are a bit more masculine on another day. And we still see employers saying, um, you can't do that. Like, we don't care which one you pick, but you have to pick one and you have to be consistent. Um, there's And there's just no justification for that. It's just another form of sex discrimination, um, but it's one that still seems to happen pretty often. But in terms of recommendations for employers, aside from doing the opposite of those things, so, <laughs> you know. Just everything you just listed, don't do that, do the exact opposite, yeah. Right. Um, um, so including make sure that there are some all-gender restrooms available. Um, don't impose gender dress codes on people. Make sure that people are using the right names and pronouns. Make sure that there's you know, full health coverage for everyone without any sex-related exclusions. I also think that for, for employers who really want to do a good job on this, one of the most important things that you can do is to hire um, a DEI consultant who's a trans person of color. There are a lot of amazing trans people of color, DEI consultants out there. And have them come in and really look at your workplace and look at what systems are working, what informal practices might need to shift, what are the sort of problem points and how in the context of your own workplace can you shift it forward. I'll also say that one one pattern that I see in places that um, that do want to hire trans people is that they might hire one or two trans people. Um, in a massive workplace, so you've maybe got a thousand employees and you've got one trans person, um, and then the person will either quit or get fired some years later, and then they'll say, oh, well, we gave it a try. And in between, so both there's intrinsically some isolation and tokenization if you hire only one, right? So you should be hiring multiple trans people and trans people of color and trans people with disabilities into multiple different types of roles and at multiple different levels of the organization, right? It's completely different to always be the one trans voice in the room or to be one of three trans voices in the room or one of five trans voices in the room, right? Like there are so many trans people who come in with phenomenal skills, incredible passion, great talent, and who just end up being underutilized or sort of set up to fail. so, I mean, this is all just from my own perceptions. It's not like I have empirical data to back it up, but I would just say you want to hire multiple trans people in multiple roles and multiple capacities. And then you want to support people in doing what they can already do really well and help them to grow the same way you should for any other employee. Yeah, you and and you you really hit the nail on the head there too. And it's it's you know in this season we've you've you've touched on this a bit already. This season we've talked about race and we've talked about gender. We've talked about disability at work and and often how the the intersections of identity can compound the challenges, but also the opportunities. You know, for innovation, for for different perspectives. And you kind of touched on that. You know, you don't hire one trans person and have one trans person in the room like that. That voice isn't going to get heard, and that that person also does not represent the monolithic universal trans experience. Um, can can you talk a little bit more about the, how the, the intersections of, of identity present these, you know, yes, more challenges, but also more opportunities? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, so of course, trans people are whole people. Um, so we have our, we have a race, we have a religion, we have a geographic background, we have, um, 
we have our sexuality, we have our class backgrounds. Like everyone else, those things inform our perspectives and inform our experiences, although they don't totally define us either, right? We're all more than just sort of a collection of categories. I mean, certainly I think that trans people um, in navigating the different things that we navigate, um, uh, including trans women of color who um, have to navigate you know, higher levels of uh, police profiling and violence, um, people do develop skills in that as well. So there are trans women of color who may have never had a formal service provider role, but who nonetheless know you know, every city agency that can provide anything useful to trans people, know all of the social workers who are best to talk to, know a fair amount about people's legal rights, know how to post bail for somebody, know how to talk to a public defender, and, and know how to advocate persistently for somebody who everyone seems intent on ignoring. And those, those are powerful skills, right? And there's also just sort of the reality that uh, this isn't just trans people um, or trans people with disabilities or any other sort of particular group, but any group that's marginalized, that, that sort of makes it to a high level in that profession after all of the different obstacles trying to keep them out are usually pretty superb in that field, which it's still not the way it should be. We should be able to have, you know, mediocre trans people have jobs too, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. Like as you were saying that, I'm like, isn't the dream? And the, I read, and I'm I'm not remembering the author's name right now. Um, a book it's about uh, like the rise of of or the the long history of mediocre white men, and it was basically like that. Like, aren't we at a level of success when like? women, people of color, trans people, people with disabilities, like we all just get to be average and mediocre and still successful, you know? Yeah, that would be really nice. You know, yeah. we shouldn't like have, you to don't be have to be the absolute exceptional. best mm-hmm. in the world to be able to have mm-hmm. a job, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we should well, all just be able to live. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to, too, you know, as we've been been talking, especially when you mentioned about, about misgendering, uh, it made me think, how has this new era of remote work impacted trans people and the trans experience at, at work. I can, I can just hypothesize that there's probably been some boons like there has been for a lot of, of different people, but also some, some real drawbacks. Yes. Well, I think both of those things are true. There has been research that shows that trans people are, have been more likely to lose their jobs during this time. And there are a lot of trans people who are small business owners, also just partly uh, the nature of things. If you're not being accepted in um, in more traditional workplaces, you're more likely to become an entrepreneur, right? Um, so the so the pandemic has been really hard on a lot of people. And I mean, one of the realities of being trans and connected with the trans community is that I think all of us get used to, isn't the right word, but we certainly get very familiar with going to funerals. Um, and during COVID, that has just been increased, right? Um, we've lost a lot of people in our community. A lot of people have, whether they're trans or not. At the same time, I think for those of us who have been able to keep our jobs and who have been in the types of jobs that allow us to work remotely, some of us have found some real, some real benefits um, because 
it's less common that people are talking about you around you in Zoom meetings. There's just some less occasion for misgendering. It still happens. It's sometimes actually almost astounding that people can manage to misgender us in some of the settings in which they do. But it has seemed somewhat less common um, for many of us. There's also a number of workplaces have been aware of the increased demands on people's time in terms of um, caretaking responsibilities. Trans people also have kids. Some people don't realize that trans people have kids, that we do also have kids. Um, It's also not that unusual for trans people to have an extended chosen family, including younger people who were acting in parental-like roles too, but who we don't have a formal legal relationship with. And the way that some workplaces have been building in flexibility around um, around hours um, and around the reality that people are going to have multiple demands in their time has been helpful for some trans people um, who don't always have their family caretaking roles recognized as easily. Um, because if an employer is just making flexibility available to everyone and everyone gets it, you don't have to prove that you are related legally to this person who needs your support. It's also just a, for those of us who are working in person, it's just sort of a different landscape when you're masked in terms of how gender is perceived. So I've actually noticed that in contexts where I have to show up somewhere in person, especially if I'm also wearing a hat, I get misgendered much more often because people don't see the facial hair, people don't see the bald head, which are the main cues that people use to identify me as male if they don't know me. So the misgendering landscape has shifted, I think, mostly for the better, but in some contexts for the worse. So I, I think for myself and for probably a lot of people listening, these, the you know, and, and again, you, you've covered a lot, you know, um, of this already, but the, uh, all of all of these issues maybe don't impact us directly in our in our daily work lives, but we are good intentioned and we want to be good allies. What what can people like that do? Well, I would definitely recommend my colleague A.C. Dumlau's article, which I believe is entitled 100 Ways to Be an Ally to Non-Binary People. It's excellent. But there, there are so many different things that people can do. I think so sometimes that looks like advocating for different workplace workplace policies, advocating for all gender restrooms or for trans-inclusive healthcare insurance policies. It can also look like um, doing everything you can to fight these terrible anti-trans bills, especially if they're in your state, but even if they aren't, it matters calling governors to ask them to veto, raising trans voices on social media, everything like that matters. Donating to trans-led organizations is incredibly important. I especially recommend donating to local grassroots trans people of color-led organizations. And then just showing up for the trans people in your life just by being good friends, good family members, managers, coworkers, or whatever else you are to them. You know, just check in. If they ask you for something around advocacy on trans issues or otherwise, and you can do it, do it. And, you know, just listen, use the right pronouns and be a nice person. It's kind of awful. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a fantastic uh, note to end on. Just just be a good person. Uh, 
Gabriel Arkless, the senior counsel at the Transgender Legal and Defense and Education Fund. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to our past episodes so far this season. We've covered code switching, the pay gap, neurodiversity, and so much more. And our next episode will include interviews with honorees from Fast Company's second annual Queer 50 list, honoring queer women and non-binary leaders in business, the arts, and advocacy. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen. 